Welcome back to the Comfort Monk Podcast. Today we spoke to Andrew Wilson of Australia, way across the pond. Uh, I think he was 16 hours ahead of us, wow. or 15 hours ahead of us. He's a producer. He makes a lot of really awesome, you know, kind of deep house, Chicago house influence stuff. He's also a DJ. He's also worked in radio and he put out an amazing album recently called Joyful that uh, in that kind of house niche, people have really gone crazy about it. It's very minimalistic, kind of uh, very beautiful, very analog sounding. Nice. Well, I appreciate that this is two in a row that you've got for the show that are overseas, keeping the uh, Comfort Monk guest list as eclectic as we can, or trying to keep it, uh, you know, just from... Trying to be international. Oh, yeah. World citizen. Um, but yeah, uh, how'd the conversation go? It was it was great. We talked a lot about, you know, um, kind of the, the house music scene in Australia. Obviously, they kind of come from a position of isolation in the first place. Right. And now, you know, with world worldwide isolation uh it's kind of interesting to hear what he had to say about about how it's affecting them but a lot of a lot of interesting stuff about you know the the music scene there um the indigenous music scene too which is really interesting he he had a hand in doing some compilations and stuff of australian music from back in the day oh that's cool we talked about that yeah that's a like a a music history that I would love to kind of dive into. I'm sure that there's like, I mean, you could say that for any country that you're not super like experienced with the, with the musical roots there. But I feel like Australia, there's, there's gotta be some like serious hidden gems in that world. Yeah, yeah. for real. I mean, cause they've, they've been influenced by, you know, I mean, just like everywhere, you know, like you know, the, whatever the popular music of the time is, but their take on it is going to be uniquely theirs. Um, you know, I, I feel like I want to say that there's like a pretty big like rock scene there. That's like There is. There's a big uh, indie rock scene yeah. in Melbourne. Um, yeah, when I think about like Australia and New Zealand, uh, you know, Split Ends were great kind of like proto-punk band. Right. Um and they they did some stuff, you know, and that obviously way before the internet and widespread sharing of music and stuff. And some of their stuff was really kind of groundbreaking in nice. the punk scene. And you're just like, some dudes out in the middle of nowhere made this. So what what time was it for you when you had the conversation with them? Uh, so it was early afternoon for me, and I think our conversation was the first thing that he did in the morning wow. the next day. <laughs> um, yeah, that's bizarre. You were, dude, you were talking to the future. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. He was, he was a day ahead of us. That was um, wild. He was seeing sun that has never existed on the side of the world before. Insane. Yeah, it was, it was a really good conversation. He had a lot to say. Well, I'm excited to hear what you guys had to talk about. Um, it's been awesome co-piloting this this podcast with you because there's a lot of things that you know musically that you've turned me on to um, and this being one of them. So I'm really excited to hear what, what you guys had to chat about. And thanks to everybody for listening to another episode of the Comfort Monk Podcast. Awesome. Y'all enjoy. All right. We'll see you next time.
chance to talk with all this, you know, craziness going on. That's a great time for a conversation. Well, cool. Well, we can get into it if you're comfortable and have everything you need. Totally. Awesome. Today we're speaking with uh, Andrew Wilson, a producer, a DJ, a radio host. Where where are we we speaking to you from today? I'm in Melbourne, Australia. Um, and are are you in your uh, studio? Yeah, I just arrived to my little studio in Carlton, not too far from the city. Awesome. Do you do you uh, typically spend a lot of time there, like composing and stuff, or is it more just a recording area? Yeah, it's kind of like a production admin music room. I spend most of my time here if I'm not out doing bike rides or at home cooking or something. Yeah, so you have a pretty uh, a pretty wild career. Uh, you've made music under lots of different names. If you don't mind sharing some of those with us. Sure. Andras has kind of been the main alias that I come and go from. and. There was some vocal collaboration, kind of like Chicago House stuff I was making with another singer from Melbourne called Oscar Keysung, as Andras and Oscar, um, mm-hmm. some years back. Uh, I used my last name, Wilson, to make music with a guy called John Tanner. So we were Wilson Tanner. Oh, and, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And made a kind of soundtrack dance type stuff under the name Art Wilson. Um, so there was a soundtrack to a dance work called Overworld and a couple other projects. Uh, that one just got reissued on Numeria Group, a label from the States. Oh, awesome. I'll have and to check that out. I've also, I've also used the word, um, sorry, the name Berko, which is my like Hungarian side of the family's um, original surname. And that mm-hmm. might be one I can reverting to for like art projects and stuff like that after all of that do you, do you consider yourself more of a producer or more of kind of a dj see i i, I like the word musician mm-hmm. i tend to refer to myself as a musician because i mean i know in the context of electronic music people use the word producer to mean someone who like works in the studio recording their own music but i still like and find it useful to think of producers as people who help albums by other bands or um recording artists and that's something i don't really do so i know what you mean. yeah i like i like the word musician that more accurately describes what i what i do in the studio as well um i also think i mean composition's a nice word but i often don't really compose without like i often use recording itself as a way of making music and I like the musician association with it being like a trade or a kind of like a handyman skill I think that's closer to what I do cool cool yeah so so kind of a a composer a musician um you know you kind of described it in sort of a like mechanical way of the you know doing doing the work of making music that's really interesting so your your latest release joyful um you you put out under the name uh andrash and it's just a a a beautiful i don't know if you mentioned chicago earlier chicago house and it does have a little bit of that kind of that soulful deep house kind of feel to it but what were you doing when when you were making the album you know in the studio 
where you kind of do you work a lot in the box? Do you, uh, you know, play a lot of physical instruments? What was kind of your approach to make that record? Yeah, I oscillate a lot between different formats. Like I think in the past I was very enthusiastic about doing everything out of a computer. Um, this one started a bit differently. Uh, I was listening to a lot of folk records at the time. Like I'd kind of returned to a lot of like, you know, 70s Bay Area psychedelic folk music and stuff from my own country and also like a lot of trance records from my early days as like a teenager collecting, you know, um, cheesy mainstream trance and early dance music. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, I was trying to mash those things together in my my head somehow and, and was making little sketches on computers using like Mac to like uh, text to voice. So like writing out lyrics and little sketches like that and kind of generating them as audio mm-hmm. and Microsoft Sam. Exactly. <laughs> um, oh, actually I used Karen quite a lot, which is the Australian dialect of uh, the generic Siri Mac voice. <laughs> awesome. Um, that's where the honeybird thing comes from. I, I was yeah. just thinking that actually, I, I love that, that little sample yeah, it's it's a fu- it's a funny thing. Like I, I kind of I really like the expression. I don't know if you have the same uh, advertising lexicon where you're based because you're you're in Carolina, right? South Carolina. Yes, I am. Um, there was a f- famous ad for the car company Toyota that used to run when I was a, a kid, and it showed like a, a group of people like kind of jumping in the air, and then it would freeze frame at the top of the jump with their like hands, you know, in a Y shape. And it's like, Oh, what a feeling. And then they just kind of hang there. Um, yeah. I really like that feeling of like kind of reaching a peak in a piece of music and then just kind of like hovering. And then the drop is a little bit of a letdown. <laughs> and that sounds really like, um, mischievous or something, which is, which is probably true of what I like to do when I DJ, but I like that feeling of kind of like working up to something and then kind of almost like, yeah, kind of like, like ruining that little moment a little bit. So <laughs> I thought the feeling of like having these hyper sentimental tracks that would kind of peak and crescendo in this really dramatic way combined with like, you know, basically a totally robotically dead voice whispering something like Honeybird with no emotion attached to it was, I don't know, it was just something that made me laugh at the time. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I think that uh, one of the other tracks on the album, Live Forever, has sort of a similar vibe to it, where, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a synthesized voice saying, you know, live forever, live forever, but it ends up kind of turning into one of the more melancholic songs on the album with the, the string section and stuff. Yeah, totally. That that song's actually a sample. It's the only one that like was used on on purpose on the record in that way. It was cleared. Um, it's by an, an American artist called Shara Small, um, mm-hmm. who, who recorded. It was like a folk record that I always loved, and the story of that record is a whole different thing, and it's it's quite fascinating. But yeah, I like that idea of us. If if you have like a really romantic sentiment and you say it over and over. Um, too many times it kind of starts to to lose a bit of its meaning you know when people say like oh don't say i love you too much because it 
it, it loses its importance. You should save it for like, you know, when you really mean it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that idea was, was something that I was pretty curious about playing with. I, I mean, I'm sitting in my studio and on the wall behind me, I wrote a couple of like um, work in progress titles for the record. And one of them was Kill Joy. Um, and it ended up being joyful instead. But <laughs> there, there is that tension between like, it's incredibly sincere and, and incredibly emotional and I, and I meant it that way, but it, it's also having a bit, a bit of fun with the things that we use to signify and, and kind of um, underline emotion. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally see that. You mentioned, uh, you know, that, that record from the seventies and you'd said before the seventies, you know, kind of West coast American folk scene was kind of on your mind. I noticed that, uh, you know, in, in Saga of Sweetheart, which is another one from this newest record, it has like kind of a sitar sound to it. And that's exactly it just brought up to me, you know, images of like the Beach Boys sitting around and jamming and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I think I wanted to play with the ideas of, you know, like there are sounds that we culturally associate with joy or happiness. And um, one of them that's always been taboo within dance music for me has been like kind of banjo and sitar and kind of guitar sounds in general. Like there's something that I often find aren't very well incorporated into dance music and maybe for good reason, but I, for some silly reason I keep trying to convince myself that I can find a way. So that's one way of incorporating it. Yeah. I think the way that you're using it in dance music works they're all, you know, human singable melodies. They all kind of have like a, a natural, you know, like vocal expression quality to it. And I think, I think that might be a way that you could, you can do stuff like that uh, without, you know, getting cheesy compared to some of the, the kind of the old trance that you were talking about. I think, you know, like approximating um, a joy sound is, is pretty simple. Like it doesn't always need to be the most ludicrously, complex thing like i think playing with emotions is not you know um doesn't have to be a cerebral body of work all the time i think like using quite simple things to signify like drama and strings and stuff at the right moment is quite fun and it it was was pretty fun to play with that for a little while after doing i think prior to recording joyful i'd been making some pretty sarcastic and quite constricted little um recording projects um like which kind of accumulated in I, I put out a record a couple of years ago that was um just a locked groove seven inch that only had 1.8 seconds of sound on it mm-hmm. it's just like single groove from a um, australian record so i was getting into this very like tiny little over considered world for a little while and, and joyful was just a chance to kind of blow it open again yeah it'd be a little less uh a little less would you say meta about it or maybe a little more sincere or maybe I'm yeah reading, maybe I'm reading that wrong no 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 totally I mean I, I studied um psychoanalysis at university and falling into dance music was a bit of a accident so there's always this overarching drive within me to over intellectualize or kind of make cultural critiques in a space that doesn't always make room for them. Speaking of, uh, you know, cultural issues, I I hope you 
aren't having too much fallout in Australia from playing shows and stuff like that. It's been pretty crazy here with uh, cancellations of, you know, live art and music and stuff like that. Yeah, everything's been put on hold. I was looking forward to doing, I kind of been lying low for a year or two. I, I did some artist residencies last year, was finishing this album and a couple other projects and was kind of going to, off the back of those things, travel quite a lot starting last week. Actually, I was meant to be in Sri Lanka at the moment playing a show and then was going to do a bunch of shows around Australia and Europe for the rest of the year. So that will be put on hold for the time being and that's fine. I've got other recording projects to do, but it's a pity not to be able to share it with people face to face. Yeah, that is hard. Your stuff that you, you compose, uh, do you typically play that live or are you talking more about a, um, like kind of a DJ tour? Yeah, this was going to be a DJ tour. I've done live performances uh, with Wilson Tanner and Andrash and Oscar and stuff over the years, including some solo stuff as well. But I find solo live electronic music performance to be um, pretty problematic for myself. Um, I always feel like it's a compromise and, and something gets lost. This album in particular was not made really to be performed live. And I don't think that's something I'll be pursuing. Although there are other projects that I'm working on that might eventuate in that way. But yeah, I think also this record was a, you know, I think, you know, being called a DJ uh, within the context of the Melbourne music scene, because I've often sat on the fence between live music and, and DJing stuff. And I used to do a radio show on a local community station that had a bit of a reputation as being, um, a home for like guitar based music in Australia in some, to some degree. Um, I think being called a DJ, I've always found as a bit of an insult <laughs> or uh, like, well, I don't mean it that way. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean like, you know, meeting, meeting friends, parents or something. And it's like, what do you do? And I'm, I'm like, you know, say, say that you're a DJ. It's kind of um, like shameful you know, it might be better to say a musician or something because maybe that comes with a bit more, you know, it's a, easier for certain people to comprehend and stuff. So this record was definitely a chance for me to reclaim the DJ thing and be proud of that and, and kind of play it up to a, as much a degree as possible. Yeah, well, hopefully you can reschedule some of that stuff that's been cancelled. Along the same subject, I, I saw, uh, it, it must have been yesterday for you, but I, I saw it today, um, you'd released a mix on SoundCloud, the Sit Alone Holiday. Yeah, I recorded that yesterday morning, um, sitting at home while me and my partner were cooped up in our apartment. Yeah, just to kind of give something for people to listen to when they're quarantined and cooped up and maybe a little nervous. I, I enjoyed listening to it this morning. So thanks. Yeah, I was just mainly like laughing about the the track list, which was kind of everything could be taken quite literally to be about the the virus at the moment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Some some of the song titles, especially, had kind of hilarious connotations that they wouldn't have had a few months ago. Yeah. I mean, it's not not that surprising. I think a lot of musicians. Um, tend to sit on the loner side of the fence or spend a lot of time alone anyway. So 
I think when I started going through my archive of music, looking for song titles that were about being isolated, it wasn't too hard to find. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. What do you think uh, life looks like for the next year for most musicians? Um, are you are you interested at all, at all in the live streaming? Yeah, I've, I've noticed some people have been doing that. Um, that's that's great. I, I like doing. I think I'd rather stick. Like personally, I'll, I'll be sticking to doing mixes and recording stuff rather than streaming like DJ sets or whatever. But yeah, I mean, my life, generally speaking, in the studio won't be too affected. I can get from where I live to, to where I record without interacting with anyone. And that's usually how it is anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and my sociability as far as like bike riding and stuff won't really be too affected, but yeah, it's just going to be a pity to, to see a lot of friends who, I guess, cause I make music and I have something to do in the studio. I can kind of keep pottering away, but for people who actually spend most of their time, performing and yeah like you know performing as a dj or touring as a band it's going to be really difficult um and for all the yeah all the venues in melbourne and everywhere really yeah yeah certainly um i'm seeing a lot of uh a lot of people posting and stuff saying you know support bands buy t-shirts and stuff but uh you know at the end of the day one of the things i i think to me that that music does is you know, it, it's different seeing seeing a performance with a hundred people than it is with headphones on, you know, on your computer. Uh, and I just wonder what, you know, as society, what we're going to miss from that kind of interaction and, you know, hopefully value those performances more, you know, when all is said and done. Mm. I think there's like this weird phenomena too, like as people... I, be, I this is kind of getting into more like a like an acoustic mythology type realm, but I've been working on really dry music at the moment uh, because I've been working on stuff for festival stages, basically. So like Australia has a really nice, usually has a really nice culture of outdoor summer festivals, and that's one of my favorite places to hear sound like I guess some people really like hi-fi bars and small wooden rooms but I really like the sound of you know really loud speaker stacks when there's nothing else around them because you get you know that's like one of the best kind of sonic environments to hear music with really big subwoofers and stuff but one great thing about those spaces is you can play stuff that's really really dry because because you're in an outdoor space and there's like other acoustic sounds happening in the environment, it doesn't sound like, you know, like claustrophobic without reverb. But I think in mm-hmm. headphones and stuff, there's a tendency for people to really want really wet sounding things, like things that have a lot of crackle, things that have a lot of like textural underscore to stop them feeling like claustrophobic and uncomfortable in small spaces. So yeah, I don't know. It's going to be interesting working on all this stuff for like a big sound system in tiny headphones over the next few months. Yeah, that that's a good point. That's that's something I would have never thought about. Yeah, you kind of have to feel feel the ambiance around you as you're mixing it, uh, even if you're you know in a, a studio with padded walls and closed your headphones on. 
Yeah. I think maybe, maybe that was, a, I mean, trying to describe that in acoustic terms is probably quite vague. Maybe a nicer way to do it was, I used to laugh about, like, do you know the music genre of Vaporwave? Mm-hmm. So it's it's quite funny because, you know, I mean, correct me if you feel differently about this, but Vaporwave seemed to me like the first genre of music that was totally disembodied. Oh, sorry, like non, non-material, non-physical. Like it was music to be conceptualized, recorded, and released without ever having to engage with, you know, people or physical objects or spaces. Like recorded in a computer, put online, bought online, listened to online. Um, it kind of existed entirely in cyberspace. And that was the appeal of the music to me when I first kind of encountered some of the early vaporwave stuff. But the kind of like shame for with what happened with Vaporwave for me was that whilst it like um, sonically tried to occupy all those cyberspace aesthetics, the visual aesthetic became totally obsessed with material space. So like all the artwork became like vectors of three-dimensional space and they had an obsession with um, like Greek, Greco-Roman statues and busts and columns and marble. I've always wondered about the the Greco-Roman thing, how that started. Yeah, and, and to me, like, this is just, you know, like a, psycho, a kind of cheap psychoanalytic reading of it. But I think at that moment that, you know, Vaporwave completely um, was able to forego, like, physicality it also became hyper obsessed with it at the same time and started putting all these markers of real physical, tangible, touchable object within this totally intangible realm. Like, you know, and and then, you know, the other day I noticed that a local record shop was um, selling a vaporwave record that I had like loved from years ago, um, like pressed to vinyl for the first time, which just struck me as, totally ridiculous yeah like the whole concept of that music or the whole appeal of it to me was was that it yeah it was kind of ethereal you know post-capitalist flow um and so then you know like fixing it to a physical medium just seems kind of quite funny in the end yeah that's interesting the concept matter the like topics of it are so fleeting and like purposefully so you know uh you know, Windows 95, AOL 3.0, all that kind of stuff. Um, mm. You know, things things that weren't meant to be the standard for more than a year or two. Um, and then you compare it to, you know, all, all the, the busts and the, the columns and stuff that not only were meant to last, but have actually lasted, you know, um, longer than almost every other, you know, material thing in this world that's man-made. Yeah, the, the con that's that, I mean, this is entering a very different realm of like musical discussion, but the concept of what lasts and, and how you make recordings or objects that are have, you know, that are extremely obdurate is, is pretty fascinating to me at the moment. I think that's like our biggest, one of our biggest struggles is how to make things that, that last um, over time. Yeah. I, yeah. It's kind of a, an Ozymandias kind of situation you know, what What can you make that the desert isn't going to take back? Who, who was that that you referenced? It, it's it's an old poem, um, and it, it's basically about kind of a, a tyrannical ruler 
who uh you know built this built this monolith to excess basically that was meant to you know uh carry his legacy into the future forever and then basically it's discovered by explorers in the future and they're just kind of trying to decode from like an anthropological standpoint you know what what it was so you know it's kind of the the basic concept of you know nothing lasts nothing is forever um Mm. you know yeah that's great that's great i think the concept of how how recording things age and how they die is, is pretty fascinating and i think maybe i like that you just referenced the desert thing because from an australian context decay definitely is something that i associate with dryness um like i think i feel like things wither out in the sun um where i live and i get pretty frustrated with i guess like australia has a predominantly eurocentric worldview and so a lot of our around death and decay comes from a European context um, and from things like, yeah, like the plague, like wetness and, and like shrouds and mud and cellars and basements and things like that, which we, we basically don't have here. There's not much of a kind of wet underground decay feeling, but we do have a lot of like sun and bleach and mm-hmm. brutalness and stuff. Yeah, that, that, that's funny because a, a lot of the the traditional images associated with decay are, as you say, they're kind of wet, they're fungal and loamy, uh, and stuff like that. But yeah, uh, you know, the the absence of the water can do the exact same thing to things, you know, in in terms of its destructive nature. I like. I mean, this is just like kind of breaking through metaphors and working through metaphors in an Australian context. But I like thinking about this stuff. I I think it's quite funny when people make assumptions about music's ability to fit within natural spaces. um, And they don't often very like question it very well. I, I went to a music festival a few years ago and was, I think I was walking back from my car or tent to the stage and ran into a, we we call them bush doofs in Australia. Does that make any sense to you? I, I haven't heard that phrase before. Yes, I mean bush is a way of like colloquially referring to nature and doof as in like doof doof. Mm-hmm. Um the sound of techno at a distance. Um <laughs> so these parties go on and, and this guy is like a kind of classic um classic bush doof shaman kind of guy with, you know, like miscellaneous dreadlocks and tribal tattoos and stuff with the um we they're called doof sticks like australia has had this weird fixation with um people love building kind of like a i don't know what you call like a like a staff like an identified staff that they use to find their friends and for their friends to find them like a really large pole overly decorated with signs or lights or carvings um so when they're like in a big crowd, it like sticks up above them and, and people can come find them. Mm-hmm. Weird. Anyway, so I ran into this guy and he's like, isn't it great to be, it's just so good to be in nature. And I was like, what, what on earth are you talking about? Like we were in a cleared paddock. There was about like 60,000 people and 
there's all these stages everywhere pumping out, you know, I don't know, however many hundred thousand watts of sound and there are lakes <laughs> and there are subwoofers and everyone's on synthetic drugs and wearing, you know, like synthetic materials with flashy metallic bits and stuff. And like, how is this getting away from it all and getting back to nature? Like every animal within an a hundred kilometer radius is probably shit scared. Every snake is pissed off as far as far away as possible. Um, just the concept of like him as like, you know, getting, getting away from it all was, was quite funny. I'm like, we've brought everything with us. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's kind of a, a, a commodification of nature going on there. I mean, that's, that's fine. Like I have no issues with, um, conflicted nature. Like there's definitely no, you know, pristine nature for us to return to outside of the one that we've modified. But I think like trying to, um, hold the, different overlays of like the actual space, the human made space, the technological space that are like all overlaid over each other. quite fascinating. My favorite place in Melbourne to, to play is this thing called the Fairfield Amphitheater. Um, it's by the Yarra River, which is the main river that runs through Melbourne um, in a section of the river where there's a lot of billabongs. So a lot of bends in the river that you know, is quite slow flowing at that point. Mm-hmm. and quite muddy and it's just this great site because on one side of the river you've got um you know modern apartment developments and stuff on the other side of the river you've got a kind of reserve of natural um tree land and shrubs and grassland and stuff um there is a freeway that goes over the top there's a victorian era boathouse that is built like this scones and tea english um, ladies with parasols, gentlemen in moustaches, like rowing these tiny little dinky wooden boats and, and stuff up and down the river having picnics. You've got this Greco-Roman amphitheater, which they built as like a replica space using Victorian bluestone to have these bizarre, I don't know, like theater performances and stuff, you know, years ago. And now people are using it to do like dance parties. So it's become this great space to see all the conflicting ideas of like, you know, Australian space and Australian music at the moment. It's been really fun. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. Along with that kind of layering of, you know, multiple cultures and concepts and, you know, degrees of nature versus human, you know, development and stuff like that. What would you say uh, kind of makes, you know, the, the Melbourne scene, unique uh in its own way like what what what's the most uh kind of melbourne thing about what y'all do yeah it's it's hard to answer i mean like the melbourne scene gets its identity i think like isolation definitely makes for a good music scene i think a lot of really good music comes from people who aren't in immediate contact with the rest of the world to some degree and I think Melbourne's always had a nice interplay between live music and electronic stuff just because the two scenes were not big enough that they could independently survive so a lot of venues that would host bands would also host electronic stuff and that interplay's always been nice through history but yeah I mean Melbourne's definitely had a, a kind of like flourishing of really great production over the last you know, five, ten years. 
I think we had a really good out, you know, outpouring of that stuff too in the in the '90s up until the early 2000s, and then there was a bit of a lag or stagnation as the internet came online. And I think now it is starting to work out a local identity or sound again. What you're talking about, you know, being in isolation kind of decreases your ability to compare yourself uh, to other musicians, which I think definitely helps. Um, mm. And then, you know, of course, with the advent of the internet, all of a sudden you can hear everything that everybody's making across the globe, you know, ba- basically the opposite of total isolation. Yeah, it seemed like, you know, and again, this is me reading to it, into a history that I was not quite there for, like I wasn't partying in the early 90s. I was born in 1988, so obviously there's a... a you know, there's a disjuncture between my perceptions of early club music and and what actually was happening. But um, I think there was some great music happening, electronic music happening in Australia in in the mid to late 90s and early 2000s. And then when I kind of got into dance music, there was definitely a very heavy fixation on American and European producers and a lot of stuff from Detroit and Chicago, which has influenced me to a huge degree too, but also um, stopped me from learning enough about what had happened in my own music scene. And I think that Eurocentrism or like obsession with American artists and sound has been something that I've worked really hard to kind of readjust. That's been a yeah. That's been I guess the most important lesson over the last five to ten years for me. Particular d- during your time of rediscovering that Australian and maybe more specifically Melbourne music. Were, were there any particular artists that you know kind of flipped a switch uh, that that lets you start to understand the identity? There's a couple of people who've become really important. Um, I've got to work with a few of them too. There's an artist called Philip Brophy who I've been kind of getting a little bit of mentorship from. He's a cultural critic and writer and filmmaker as well as a musician. Um, He made a great film called Body Melt, if anyone is ever curious, which was like a schlock, ultra-violent sci-fi horror film that I think Quentin Tarantino was a bit of a fan of. Hmm. Um he's done some great work and I think he's done some great work about, or like kind of just helping decode what it is that Australians like to think of as themselves. And alongside him, there's another artist called Andy Ranson, who was in a group called Itchy and Scratchy, uh, who wrote a song called Sweetness of Light, which is maybe one of my favorite Australian rave anthems, like a nineties rave anthem. And Andy Ranson's still making music and all his stuff has been really excellent and I've had the chance to kind of help compile his music on a few different things. When you talk about your your efforts to compile it, was there sort of an element of lost recordings, you know, whether they were, you know, 12-inch singles that got lost or anything like that? Yeah, like I've done, I've helped do two compilations for a friend's label called Efficient Space, which is based here in Melbourne as well. I did one called Midnight Spares, um, which was a lot of kind of like 70s and 80s music and and maybe a little bit more like disco leaning. 
And then we did one called 3AM Spares a couple of years ago on the same label, um, which was a compilation of mainly dance music from the 90s and early 2000s. Um, most of the stuff on 3AM Spares, it wasn't like per se lost. It was all just relatively obscure. Like most of it was on CD. Most of it was on Bandcamp or people's private websites too. It's just that no one was bothering to look for it because everyone was so obsessed with records here. And records, as in vinyl, give a really incomplete snapshot into the amount of music being made in this country in the last 20 years because it's only ever been a really select section of the Australian music scene that's been able to afford press and distribute records, you know, even in our own country, yet alone globally. Um, we don't have a lot of pressing plants here in this country. We certainly had less access to that stuff in the early 2000s. So I think if you yeah, if you want to get like a really good picture of what's going on in Australian music, vinyl isn't always the best way to do it. Um, I still love that as a medium. Very limiting if you want to support independent music. There's also certain genres of music that are about like immediacy and freshness. You know, if you're producing a lot of mixes that are, you know, going straight into clubs and people are enjoying, you probably aren't going to go through the nine month or, you know, 12 month process of releasing a proper, you know, 12 inch of it. Yeah, totally. So it seems like not only does it cut down, you know, the amount of releases that you can listen to, but it also cuts down, you know, the style and kind of the almost to like a, a genre level of what gets released and what doesn't. Yeah. And, you know, also like just, just, I guess, you know, with vinyl, you have to consider the expense and the, you know, the ecological impact. And, you know, I got asked to DJ at like a, I played at an environmentally sustainable festival once in Melbourne, which is really nice. They had set up solar powered um, panels and everything was being run off off the grid um and they asked me whether or not i wanted to bring records and it just seemed like such a a funny concept because you know getting all these heavy things that have been shipped all around the world at great expense bringing them to melbourne because the bag would be heavy i wouldn't be able to like ride my bike to the gig i'd have to get a car or a taxi so it just you know in the context of that it just made so much more sense to to play you know digitally released music um, as opposed to lugging around records. Yeah, I, I think there's a, a, a Father John Misty song that kind of touches on that. And he says something like, uh, try not to think about uh, how much you know petroleum it takes to press the record that you're listening to right now. So you, you said you were born in 88. You and I are right around the same age. The early days of you know MySpace, there's countless... You know, I'm from, you know, Southeast United States, uh, and we had a very cool punk scene when I, when I was growing up and there's Mm -hmm. just countless, just amazing albums that just never got released anywhere, you know, other than MySpace. I'm sure somebody has copies of them somewhere, but, uh, you know, there, there's definitely a lost history there. Yeah. I mean, in an Australian context as well, like any music made by like Aboriginal musicians from Australia is very rarely going to be on, on vinyl and all that stuff is totally fascinating. I think a lot of music by 
you know, younger generations as well locally uh, isn't available on vinyl. And, and that's all stuff that I really like researching and playing. That's what I'm most fascinated by. That's why I like living and playing Australian music. And if I can't represent that stuff in my sets and radio shows and stuff, then I'm doing a huge disservice to my scene. That's really cool. It, from th- that scene, are there a lot of house producers? Uh, it's pretty wide reaching. Like a lot of the, um, I don't know, my, my, my limited familiarity with y'all new music, which, so I, I helped just for, by way of context helped Michael who runs efficient space, who I did those compilations for uh, reissue a record by an Australian group called Wak Wak Jungi. And it was a record recorded in Melbourne by two Yolnu songmen um, who are from Arnhem Land, which is the f- far northeast of Australia. Um, and it's a really, really big, vibrant community up there. And a lot of music gets made. And in the 90s, they'd made this kind of bizarre um, electronica kind of record with a producer down in Melbourne who used to do like film and TV soundtracks in the 80s. Kind of sounds a little bit like Larry Heard's Scenery is Not Songs, but with Indigenous Australian vocals. Um, it's oh, that's totally cool. incredible. And that was one of the records that I found when I used to do a radio show at Triple R, and, and we kind of got to meet up with them. But stuff like that, I, I sorry, to answer your question, house music sounds aren't super common, and that record in particular was one that, almost hit the mark for me as far as being a kind of Aboriginal Australia and kind of, you know, house music, quote unquote. Um, but there's a lot of interest in, um, in, in reggae sounds, um, rap country stuff, folk music and still traditional stuff as well. Are are there any, um, support systems for that kind of music? Any, you know, you mentioned the work that you're doing to help kind of bring some of it to light. Are there any like specific record labels or, uh, yeah. you know, zines or anything like that? Yeah. There's, I mean, there's, there's lots of government funded and not-for-profit things as well as Aboriginal run and operated labels. Um, a couple of really old famous ones include, there's a, a record label called Karma, so C-A-A-M-A, which is the Central Australian Aboriginal Music Association. Um, there's also a label called Skinny Fish, which has done really well. They released music by Gurumul, who's kind of like, I guess, maybe the icon of, of Aboriginal Australian music. Um, and then there's lots of amazing independent compilations from some of the communities as well. There's also a great website called Indigitube, um, which I'm super fond of. A lot of the musicians also make videos and, and their videos are really, really good. A lot of metal metal bands as well from the north of Australia. I like that too. Uh, we here at Comfort Monk have a pretty wide range of, uh, you know, tastes. I actually, the, the last interview I just did was with a, a, a guy from a black metal band. What was the black metal band? Uh, Dawn Raid. They're a, they're from, they're from Liverpool in the UK. Um, they're an anti-fascist, like anarchist black metal band. Great. There's a great Australian artist I really like called Stryborg. Have you heard his music? Oh, I, I love Stryborg. Yeah. Um, he's, he's 
Very interesting. I also really like what he's doing at the moment with his um, uh, dark wave, I think he's calling his genre. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of some some synthesizers and some 80s drum machines. I love it. Yeah, I mean, he's listening to a lot of like 80s pop and stuff and, and it's coming out pretty interestingly. It's kind of funny how, you know, all, all of these genres that kind of used to occupy their own, you know, kind of space. I mean, house music, definitely. A lot of these genres that kind of, <clears throat> you're expected to be part of a subculture and you're expected to, you know, exist in a certain, you know, space. And now, you know, for lack of a better term, everybody is allowed to be in ev- into everything, which is good. Yes. Do y'all have any, uh, you know, classic old, old rave spots or anything? you know, back from the nineties. There was a number of, um, good sheds in the docks in Melbourne on the water that were used for raves in the nineties in Australia. And they've all been kind of like commandeered and turned into corporate event spaces and office buildings and stuff. But yeah, it sounded like that was a moment in time. Um, there are still some great spots for parties in the, there's like a series that I think Melbourne has a bit of a reputation for being like drain city. Um, we have a lot of, cause I guess cause just when the city was built, we have a lot of concrete drains that kind of dealt with a lot of the creeks and rivers that used to flow, um, over like kind of all over the city of Melbourne. So a lot of them have been like put underground or they've been opened out into like, you know, in Greece where they, race down the drains in LA or whatever Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff there's a lot of that around and so those spaces have always been really popular with people holding kind of illegal parties because things like that under freeways and stuff don't really have any um noise bleed issues and they're also (laughs) you know kind of hard for cops to get to and stuff like that a couple times recently I live near one of the big drains just slightly west of Melbourne's city center and often i'll go for like a bike ride on maybe like a sunday morning or something and start to hear techno thumping in the distance and get around abandoned there's a bunch of people who've been partying all night (laughs) pretty fun yeah i love that how about in your city do you have a active rave scene at the moment we really don't um as far as those kind of those kind of older uh, you know, kind of clandestine clubs. Uh, the city I'm in, uh, Columbia, South Carolina, has kind of a cool old punk rock history with a lot of, uh, you know, old old bars and, you know, house house uh, shows and stuff where a lot of the kind of classic 80s, you know, DC and LA punk bands came through um, Great. back in the day. Yeah, I mean, we, we do have a, a, a pretty thriving music scene um, here it, it it tends to be uh, kind of gu- guitar ri- driven rock or uh, hip hop is kind of the what what you hear a lot of Australian hip hop yeah I mean we have the punk thing makes sense in Melbourne the hip hop scene is not a scene that I'm super connected with here in my city but I do like a dive bar oh yeah always good well Andrew thanks for talking to us today. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to you. Um, is, is there anything, uh, you know, whether it's radio show wise or any projects you're working on that uh, people should look out for? 
Yes, interesting timing, right? I, I would have yeah. been able to say I'd be on the road for the rest of the year playing shows and that hopefully I'd be back in the States at some point too. But that seems extremely unlikely to happen in 2020. So I will be uh, recording away. I think we'll make a third Wilson Tanner record at some point this year, which is my like ambient collaboration side project. Um, awesome. Hopefully recorded in a vineyard outdoors because we've had this long-running tradition of recording all those records outside. And I'll just be recording another record. I've been working on... Um, an electronic project about the Victorian gold rush, which happened in the 1860s, which is quite a funny idea, making an electronic record about a period of time where there wasn't electricity, really. <laughs> um, so that's become a bit of a personal joke. Uh, I've been floating the idea that the, the working title for this project will probably be Pioneer DJ. <laughs> that's um, great. So... That might be the uh, recording project for the next few months. Well, good luck with that. I hope you uh, manage to stay safe, stay healthy, stay connected while we're all under quarantine. Absolutely, you too. Well, thanks a lot for talking with us, and um, hopefully I can talk to you later, and uh, hopefully later we can talk about you maybe coming to the United States at some point. Yeah, I it, I need to make a trip out there and... and see some of the cities that lie between the coasts thanks for your time all right have a good one you too bye this has been a comfort monk production 